The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Hello and welcome to What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley, and with me tonight is Father William Jenkins. He's from the Society of St. Pius V, and he's a pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. How are you? Very fine, Tom. Thank you very much. How are you doing? Good, Father. Thanks for being here. Absolutely. Father, we can start here with an email from a viewer in Australia who says, Is it far-fetched to think, perhaps, that questions regarding Vigano hiding for his life are purposely lacking to increase mistrust and anti-clericalism in the minds of the people. Was Vigano's letter staged, and is he an actor in the destruction of the church? These are my first thoughts when you said that Francis can thank Vigano. Well, I'm not exactly sure how to interpret this, um, but the idea of Francis thanking Archbishop Vigano for his letter of accusation, that was not my statement. That was actually the thought of, uh, I think it's Francesco Sisci, right? The Sinologist, the expert on China. He was the one who wrote the article. And he believed that uh, Vigano actually benefited Francis by accusing him of knowing that Cardinal McCarrick was abusing seminarians. Um, Sishi's idea was that uh, by launching this apparent attack right, on Francis's uh, credibility and uh, accusing him of being complicit in McCarrick's crimes, at least uh, enabling them, even encouraging them, uh, somehow drew so much attention to Francis that it emphasized the fact that the, the, the church is a global force and Francis is a global figure and um, sort of increased Francis's prominence and prestige before the world. You know, um, It sounds like a strange thesis to me, quite frankly. Uh, but um, so he thought he was positing the idea that um, that Vigano actually uh, um, added to Francis's stature in the eyes of the people in the world. And um, the reaction throughout the world was such that it kind of reinforced the idea that Francis was a great global leader, and this is of, of great importance to everyone, whether they're Catholic or not. Um, so he was actually making the case also that this just emphasized the importance of the church in people's minds, that they saw a kind of um, division between Francis and one of his bishops, and they took it so seriously. Uh, so this wasn't my thesis. This was uh, Francesco Sicci's thesis. Um, I want to make that clear that I'm not the one saying that, okay? In fact, the reason why I had pointed it out is because I thought it was rather bizarre. Um, Accusing someone essentially of a crime, and then having say, and then having people say, "Well, the fact that you accused of a crime and everybody came so interested in it, 
that it just increased their uh, their stature throughout the world. You know, everybody cared. You made this accusation. I don't, I don't get that part either. But in any case, um, but see, she also went on to to indicate, and actually, I think he came out and said it in his article that the clergy abuse scandal that's going on right now actually is to Francis's benefit and to the church's benefit, which is really peculiar. So the, the thinking going on uh, right now is not only uh, uh, very puzzling, it's, uh, it's alarming that people think like this. Um, but in any case, to get back to what uh, our dear writer was saying here, uh, the fact that people are not making a, a big issue of the fact that uh, uh, Archbishop Vigano is in hiding because he is in fear, that he fears he's in danger now. Well, I, I think that the uh, the blogger, uh, what's his name, uh, Valley, was the one who pointed out that uh, Archbishop Vigano thought he, he would be in danger because of what he did. And uh, also Archbishop, Archbishop Vigano's um, co-worker uh, in the um, Nunciature to the United States, this Monsignor Lanthome, made the statement that he did, that Vigano is telling the truth, and if you find me chopped up and encased in cement and thrown in the bottom of the river, don't be surprised, you know, that they say I committed suicide. I mean, those statements certainly did highlight the, the idea that um, there's a certain danger in Vigano uh, exposing uh, Francis and his complicity in the homosexual abuse crisis in the church, you know, as though he's got something to fear from these people, and they are not nice, and they're very dangerous people to to, uh, to cross. Um, the fact that people aren't making a major issue of this, um, she indicates, she asks, if this is meant to um, un undermine uh, what, how did you put it? If it's meant to increase mistrust. To increase mistrust. I'm not sure how that would be. Uh, the silence, but not only Vigano being in hiding, but that even when it's mentioned, the reason that he's being in hiding because he fears he's in some danger. I'm not sure how that would increase mistrust and mistrust of whom? Uh, Vigano? Maybe she's indicating that this. Um, concealing this fact, or let's say um, uh, dismissing this idea that he's in hiding for fear, somehow would increase mistrust of him. If if that's the the idea, then it could well be. It could be that they, you know, those who want to undermine the credibility of uh, Archbishop Vigano's accusations really do want to to just downplay um, the idea that he's in hiding because he's in, in fear, okay? I'd rather think, though, that if they wanted to, if they wanted to discredit Archbishop Vigano, I personally would think that they would be saying, oh, look, he supposedly is in hiding because he's in fear uh, for his life. Oh, come now. Isn't that ridiculous? Is this man paranoid? I mean, who's going to hurt him? It's absurd, you know? Who, does he think Francis is going to hurt him? Uh, does he think the homosexuals are out to get him because of what he said? 
Does he think Cardinal McCarrick at the age of 80-something is going to come after him? I mean, if I wanted to discredit Vigano, uh, I think I'd be taking that approach. That you know, He says he's in hiding for his life. I mean, where is he? He's probably, uh, you know, lounging poolside somewhere right now, um, relaxing somewhere. This is the approach that I would take to try to um, sort of discredit, you know, his 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 whole uh, statement. But I don't see anybody taking that that approach at all. Um, they're just no one, to my knowledge, is attacking the idea that uh, that there is some danger to him, and that is why he is hiding. No one, no one that I know of has accused him of being paranoid, that he's imagining something, that he's overreacting, um, that this is some sort of a, a game or a ruse or a charade, so that he says, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm fleeing for my life, and then he disappears, and he's um, in some expensive... Uh, uh, presidential suite and some on the Riviera. <laughs> so I don't know. I don't hear anybody saying that. I don't hear anybody even contesting the question of, that he's in danger. I don't hear anybody saying, "Oh, he's not in danger. This is absurd. He should come out and face the world and, and accept responsibility for what he did." Even even others who've written about him, this, this so-called Cardinal Supic and the so uh, Cardinal Willette in um, in Toronto, when they've written. Uh, that I don't hear anybody saying that the the idea of him being in danger is absurd and uh, he should stop uh, playing the silly game of hide-and-seek and come out and just, uh, you know, face the the music if he had any, any courage. Why is it? I don't know why anybody isn't saying that. I don't know why this is being said by no one, at least no one I know of. Um, so I just have a hard time seeing that um, they would, you know, as they say, uh, make light, of, uh, just ignore, ignore the, the danger, the, the idea that he's in danger for the sake of discrediting him. I don't see that happening, in fact. So if they are doing it for the sake of discrediting him, I don't see them being very successful at it, discrediting, discrediting him by that. I think they discredit him by making light of the fact that he says he's in danger, or at least Valley says, or Lanton indicates that. But she says something else there about, oh, is he an actor? Mm-hmm. As though, uh, well, if, if he were an actor, basically um, motivated, as though he's sort of on the caper, that it, he uh, intentionally launched this accusation for the sake of benefiting Francis, is that it? Is that the point, you think, for the sake of uh, making a sensation out of all this? <clears throat> um, I, I guess I just find, would find that hard to believe. Again, um, because um, the, the, the reaction, I, I would think if that he, he was conspiring to do this. Did he take it upon himself to do it, thinking, well, I'll uh, make Francis... Uh, the victim, and and I will generate great um, sympathy for Francis by accusing him. And if I will write this letter and accuse him, then there will be a great backlash. Everybody will see me as the villain and Francis as the hero. I don't see that. Um, that if I attack Francis now, I know exactly what will happen. 
Francis will emerge the good guy, and uh, Vigano, I will be uh, denounced as the bad guy by the world's press. And this is my intention then to glorify Francis. I really don't see any indication of that. Now, if he just didn't, if the point is he didn't just decide it's on his own, was he put up to this by somebody? You know, did, did somebody say, oh, look, we have this report from the Pennsylvania grand jury and it makes us look pretty bad here. And pretty soon they're going to trace this uh, back to Francis and we better uh, launch a preemptive strike here and have you somebody and maybe maybe you, Vigano, you'd be a good one. Why don't you attack Francis now? So we can get the world's press on Francis's side, because then he will look like the great protector of the homosexuals, and you will look like the bad guy, like you're trying to rally all these conservatives against Francis. And uh, then we can expose this vast right-wing conspiracy in the church for being uh, the crock that it is. If you have to pay the price of appearing to be uh, sort of like their their Pyrrhic leader, that's fine. That's a small price to pay, and you'll be saving, you'll be saving the uh, the great mission of the great Francis to finally, finally bring Vatican II to its ultimate conclusion. So why don't you fall on your sword, sacrifice yourself for this great cause? I mean, if this is what the indication is, I, ju I just don't see it happening that way. Do you? No, fine. Okay, thank you. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm trying to figure how this could possibly, you know, how it could possibly be. I just don't see any way that that works in my mind anyway. Sure. I think yeah. it's a fair question, though. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I don't know. I hope the answer is a fair answer. Sure. Father, we've got another question here concerning the, uh, the Novus Ordo Church. Such viewer uh, writes in and says that Father Jenkins says that we have to reject completely this Novus Ordo construct and go back to the traditional Catholic faith. But my question is, how are we supposed to do that? With what tools and methods besides rejecting? By what and whose authority can we do that as the laity? We have no valid sacraments because only priests can administer the sacraments, and all the cardinals who will elect the next pope and bishops are modernists made out of Vatican II and their byproducts, the priests today, are already 95 or 99% modernist agents. So, Father, how do we go about rejecting this Novus Ordo construct? We reject it and refuse to go along with it. Refuse to go along with the, the so-called New Mass, which is the Novus, the New Order, right? Refuse to, accept, refuse to accept their modernized sacraments, which have adulterated the meaning of the, uh, of the, uh, of the actual Catholic sacraments, so which are meant to replace them, right? Refuse to go along with uh, anything that is riddled with modernism. Um, what we have to reject is modernism. There's no doubt about that. St. Pius X made it absolutely clear we have to reject modernism. So we reject the, the, the principles of modernism. And rejecting modernism in principle has some very serious consequences. That is the products of modernism. The religion of modernism we have to reject. That's, that's the Novus Ordo. That's what came out of Vatican II. That's the Paul VI put in place from 1963 uh, to 1978. This is this is this was his mission. This he fulfilled well by actually uh, creating a modernist religion to replace the traditional Catholic religion. Now um, this writer may say, "But okay, suppose we do that. Suppose we reject modernism as we're supposed to, and we want to go back to practice the traditional Catholic religion." 
how do we do that? Because I guess the point is that there are very few traditional Catholic priests left in the world. And um, I mean, admittedly, relatively, there are a few traditional Catholic priests left in the world. But nonetheless, the point is that um, we can't say, well, let's all become Lutherans because there aren't enough Catholic priests left. You know, that's we any more than we can say, well, let's all accept modernism because we have no choice because, you know, we can't find enough traditional Catholic priests. Can't do that. The point is, find traditional Catholic priests or true traditional Catholic priests. Um, direct vocations to the true seminaries where they really ordain true and God gives vocations. God doesn't give vocations to become Novus Ordo modernist priests. God does not give vocations to people to become a modernist clergy, clergyman or, or a Protestant minister. So um, the vocations are there to become real priests. And uh, we, we basically have to uh, then adhere to the traditional mass and receive the traditional sacraments and refuse anything that is not. And this uh, person says, by what authority do we do this? By an authority greater than any that held by any, any human being in the church. And that, that is the authority of Catholic tradition. Remember, the ultimate authority in the Catholic church is, is that of our Lord Jesus Christ, right? Uh, that of the Holy Ghost, right? That of the Father, Heavenly Father. Uh, God the Father sent his Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, and uh, who is the founder of this Catholic Church and the head of the Church, okay? And the Son himself has sent the Holy Ghost to guide us. There you have the ultimate authority in the Church. And uh, that, divine, uh, that divine authority has left us what we know as two fonts of revelation, sacred scripture and sacred tradition. You might even say that sacred scripture is, is a product of sacred tradition. Okay, it began as sacred tradition and was written down, recorded as such. So uh, there we find the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. There we find the work of the Holy Ghost and the church. And these two things have authority. They have the ultimate authority here on earth. Um, uh, sacred scripture and sacred tradition as the voice of, of, of our Lord and the Holy Ghost, whom our Lord said he would send not to teach new new things, but to bring to our minds all things that he himself taught us. That's what he said to the apostles. Okay, So, um, you know, if one were to ask, well, and I, I've asked this question before in previous videos, uh, who has more authority on earth? Uh, you know, Pope Pius Twelfth or sacred Tradition. Well, sacred tradition, obviously. St. Pius X, who has greater authority, St. Pius X or sacred tradition. Sacred tradition, right? Mm -hmm. Pius X is subject to sacred tradition. He has to accept it, or he's not a Catholic at all. The same, same with Pius, St. Pius X, St. Pius V, uh, all the other popes in history. All, sacred tradition has greater authority than all the popes combined, right? All the popes combined uh, are good or bad popes, and are, are popes at all, depending on whether they are subject to Catholic tradition. There is the greatest authority. Right. right. So if one says, okay, well, what by, by what authority do we, as traditional Catholics, uh, return to the practice of the traditional Catholic faith and reject the Novus Ordo, the answer has to be, by the virtue of the Holy Ghost present in and working through Catholic tradition. Um, 
you you cannot find a greater authority on the on the earth than that. So uh, this this is this is the authority. By the way, every time a, a a true Catholic pope makes any pronouncements of any kind, they are basing themselves on these two fonts of revelation. This is the foundation of the the legitimacy of anything they say, that it can be traced to Catholic tradition or sacred scripture. But, Father, this rejection that, that we're speaking of, this is only the negative aspect of things. As far as the positive aspect of, of things, it seems you're saying seek out a, a traditional priest and, and find him and practice the, the faith, uh, receive sacraments through him. But what can one do if there's not a traditional priest readily available? Because we get emails from, from people in that circumstance every single day. We do. What's and the positive approach to reject? The positive approach, I mean, it takes some sacrifice. But I, I mean, I think back to the time when much of the world was missionary territory. And what did what did people do back then? I mean, in this country, 150, 200 years ago, um, people would go off as pioneers into the hinterland and establish homesteads. And uh, eventually, you know, they would they would uh, have priests come to them as they became available. But uh, they did not go to Protestant churches until Catholic priests arrived. <laughs> they were Catholics, and they practiced the faith as well as they could under the circumstances. Um, so um, this, is, this is basically the mentality that we have to have today. Uh, we can't settle for modernism, uh, which is the most virulent form of anti-Catholicism there is. Uh, we have to make the sacrifices necessary to locate the true Catholicism, and we have to go to it. We have to find it, right? And uh, if that requires, um, you know, moving, then fine. Then that's what we'll have to do. I mean, how many times have we had people move here with their families for the sake of putting their children in the school? Every week, it seems. It, it seems that we have people who are constantly seeking us out here because of the school, because of the traditional Catholic Church contacting us, uh, planning on moving, and many of them actually succeed in coming here for that purpose. If that's what it takes, then th then if that, then that's what we have to do in order to practice. I think, look, I'm not asking people to do anything I myself was not willing to do, uh, or that other traditional priests in the world are not able to do. We've, we've had to leave our homes, not only our, our states, and fly to other regions of the country to find seminaries, Many of us have had to leave the country and uh, study abroad just to find a true traditional Catholic seminary, and have had to, uh, you know, seek and seek and find. I was in the seminary for a total of ten years in various seminaries until I finally was ordained by Monsignor Lefebvre in 1978. Um, but this is what was necessary to do. I just had to find it, and the. And I think if they would look around and say, well, look, these traditional priests, they've had to go through quite a bit, certainly more than priests before Vatican II had to go through when everything was basically handed to them almost on a silver platter. Um, but they didn't have to go far to become priests. But now we do, and we have to make more sacrifices. I'm not trying to, uh, you know claim uh, heroism, you know, uh, for myself or any of the others. This is just, just what Catholics do. You know, it's a, a far cry from the heroism of the martyrs. Uh, 
We we had to just inconvenience ourselves. These things amounted to no more than inconveniences. But uh, the fact is, we're we're just asking the laity to do what we ourselves are willing to do, to become traditional priests. Uh, so this is this is what I what I'm getting at here. People have to be willing to make sacrifices these days to practice the true Catholic faith. Whatever you do, though, don't practice modernism uh, as a consolation prize because there's no consolation in practicing that. Father, what would you say to those with the mindset of um, those who will say something along the lines of, well, there's no traditional priest in my area, but we do have, let's say, the uh, fraternity of, of St. Peter there. They offer the Latin Mass. Maybe I'll, I'll go to my local Novus Ordo parish where they offer a Latin Mass there. Yes, it's Novus Ordo, but at least it's the Latin Mass, so it's better than nothing. But what would you say to those who have that approach? This kind of quasi-traditional is better than nothing. I would say that that is a logical absurdity, meaning that nothing is not good, nothing is bad. Okay, This is not a comparison of good, better, best. This is a comparison of bad, worse, and worst. Okay, So they might say nothing being the worst, then going to a, let's say, a Latin mass within the Novus Ordo is not as bad as nothing, but it's still not good. It's still bad, right? It's still trying to practice the traditional Catholic faith within the modernist, uh, within the realm of modernism. And there will inevitably be compromises with modernism that have to be made to do that. And I think anybody who's with you know, the fraternity of St. Peter, and so will have to, if you were to question them, and they were to honestly respond to the questions that you would ask, I think it would come out that, yes, they have to compromise with modernism and with modernists in order to have as much of the traditional Catholic faith as they're allowed to have in these organizations, which is the only reason why the modernists even allow this in the first place. There's to be such a thing as a fraternity of St. Peter. So again, it's not a matter of, well, isn't it better to do this than to do that? Only if you're comparing something good with something better and something best. That's not what we're doing here. It, just to, trying to illustrate the point, okay? I was, I was on uh, WSB radio out of Atlanta one night, and uh, somebody called in and uh, said, well, well which, is, which, is, which is better? They said, is it better to have a baby born in poverty and to have that baby born sickly and, and die and, and in infancy? And, or is it better just to go ahead and abort the baby and save the baby all that suffering? Now, what would you say to that? Uh, neither of them are good options. No, no, there's no such thing as one better, the other better than the other, because we're not talking about good, better, best. The whole language is perverted here. It's a question of which is worse, because we're talking about two evils here, okay? And and if she says, well, which is worst thing to do, the worst thing to do? Well, I think it became very clear uh, that the worst thing to do is to murder the baby in the womb, rather than to allow the baby a chance to, to, to live and to allow the baby to have a chance to be baptized and to give the ch child a chance to to survive and perhaps go on to thrive, 
the idea of saying, well, the better thing to do would be just to put all these babies to death. I, I think most people would realize that this is not something good we're comparing here. Right. here, here. Uh, this is the comparis- the comparative form of what is evil and bad. Right. Um, and neither choice is desirable. But one is definitely worse than the other, more evil than the other. And the the same thing here. I think uh, if people were saying, well, I'll just have to settle for this because uh, this is all I can get to right now under the circumstances and say, well, if you're willing to just say, okay, this is uh, this is all I'll ever have or all ever I'll ever want because it's better than nothing. I would say you're selling your soul short. And. our Lord may well be asking, and I think he's asking you to make more of an effort to save your soul than that. Sure. Father, let's move on then to another email. This one is a question about the church's policy on drug use. So this viewer says, I just finished watching the WTV episode on marijuana, and I had a question for Father Jenkins. If it is okay to use alcohol in moderation, but it is sinful to use drugs because people use drugs specifically for the effects that they produce, what would the church say about the habitual cocaine use of Popes Leo XIII and Pius X? Pope Leo XIII and Pius X were both habitual drinkers of Mariani wine tonic. The wine was invented by Anglio Mariani of Italy. It utilized French Bordeaux grapes and was infused with a very high concentration of cocaine from Peru. Pope Leo XIII awarded a Vatican gold medal to Anglio Mariani, and he appeared on posters and advertisements all over the world endorsing the wine tonic for its beneficial effects. If it is sinful for people to smoke marijuana for its effects, would it not also be sinful for people to use cocaine for its effects? Uh, question. When he says he appeared on advertisements all over the world, he's saying Pope Leo XIII appeared? I believe so. Or Mariani appeared? I believe he means Pope Leo XIII. Leo, Leo uh, thir- oh, I, I didn't know he was uh, uh, commissioned. Uh, must have been a very lucrative contract. <laughs> he says po- Pope Leo XIII awarded a Vatican gold medal to Anglio Mariani. And he, appear- appeared, he appeared, and, on, and these he appeared posters. on posters and advertisements. I hope he got a good commission. <laughs> I'm just a little puzzled by all that. Well, in fact, uh, I mean, uh, assuming that this is all accurate, and I, I, I believe it is. I, I, there's reason to believe it is okay. This person evidently has done his homework on that. Uh, but uh, we have, I mean, look at Coca-Cola, right? Um, was there cocaine in Coca-Cola? That's right. Yeah, there was. I mean, people drank it; they thought nothing of it, right? Um, I mean, there's caffeine in coffee too, right? The caffeine is a drug too, isn't it? Yes, right. So people drink that too. I think. I think the point we're missing here, though. And uh, maybe it, it requires clarification also, because uh, um, I think the gentleman actually does make a, a point here about that uh, that um, that I I said because of the effect of this, it, it makes it different from alcohol. People use this uh, because of its effect, and don't necessarily drink alcohol because they want to get they want to get drunk. But remember, the idea of these of these drugs um, slowly came to uh, 
to be understood, the, the use of these drugs has slowly come to be understood for their effects, okay? I mean, the opium den, dens of London, right? The opium dens that claimed such luminaries as Francis Thompson. <laughs> uh, these were legal. Uh, they were not considered to be outrageously evil, right? Um, and um, the fact is, it was only in the course of time that people really began to understand the deleterious effects of these things. I mean, now remember, when I say that these drugs um, must, the use of drugs is not the same as the use of alcohol. Uh, unless one starts out with the idea of getting drunk and drinking because of the effect that the alcohol has on the brain, okay, it numbs the brain. If one uses alcohol for the sake of the psychological effects of the alcohol, they're abusing it. When somebody says, I, I need a drink, it's they, they need something to calm their jangled nerves, and they want to use it for the effect of the alcohol on the brain, okay? Maybe there's some people who do, you know, are so so fragile mentally that um, they need something like that to calm them down. Uh, in the Wild West, when somebody had an arrowhead that had to be dug out or a bullet dug out, they gave them a swig of alcohol to elegant anesthetic, right? There can be legitimate uses for these things. Um, there are drugs that we give that uh, put people to sleep, right? I myself just had rotator cuff surgery, surgery and had nerve well, nerve block administered and anesthesia. So, I mean, these were these were drugs that had a legitimate use. There's a legitimate use for them. The question, the question involving the use of these things, though, is uh, when the when they do damage, when they are used uh, for their own sake, for the sake of their mind altering purposes without any real proportionate reason or good or requirement to um, use that is fulfilled there, when the sole purpose of using them is because of the effect they have on the receptors in the brain, you might say, right? Now, Pobleo thirteenth, Pius the 10th, they liked this one, okay? Were they thinking in terms of the cocaine and the the effects of it did they drink it um immoderate immoderately i doubt it i have no record of that and i think they would condemn it and i think they would have been condemned for drinking it that way um but the problem with the drugs today is that again people are using them purely and simply for the the effect it has uh, like kind of psychotropic effects on the brain. And uh, that is not legitimate. They have discovered, we know now from, from use and abuse, we know the damage that is done. We can test these things. Um, if it were brought to Pope Pius X's attention, if it had been brought to Pope Leo XIII's attention, that the contents of, of these drinks were dangerous, were damaging, and what, what these things would lead to, you can be sure that they would have been condemned by them. 
But none of this was understood back then. None of this was realized back then. It's only in the course of time with our own modern medicine and our, and our modern, uh, uh, our ability to track these things, to, to, to see the effects on society, to see the, these effects on the individual. Let me realize these things can be very dangerous and uh, very damaging. And that is why the church in her moral theology has come to warn against them and to um, to admonish the Catholic people in particular who follow the church's moral teaching that it would be sinful and possibly more mortally sinful to use these things if there's serious damage. Pope Pius X smoked too. I mean, I, th I think it was... Um, I think it was Cardinal Mary Delval who gave him a, a very nice, attractive cigarette case as a gift for Christmas, I thought. Now, was Pius X evil for supporting the tobacco industry? Hey, Pope Pius X's family made its fortune. The Maestafroidi family uh, were the chief tobacconists in, in, in Rome. Okay, does that make them evil? And there's nicotine in the, uh, in the, in the cigarettes. People didn't understand what they were dealing with back then, you know. Uh, so one has to give the give the little benefit to the fact that there's a lot of time that has passed, a lot of research that has been done. There's an awful lot of experience that we've had with these things in the meantime, since Pope Pius X, Pope Leo XIII, Pope Pius IX, three successive popes. And now we realize that these things can be used legitimately under certain circumstances and for certain reasons, <laughs> but they can also be abused. And the abuse of these things can be very damaging and very simple. And that's all the church is saying. And Father, that's all I'm saying too. In regards to the, to the usage of marijuana, perhaps something similar is happening today. Uh, you and I have talked about this with the legalization of marijuana in Colorado and other states. There's been a, a great push to do a lot of more studies and, and research totally. on this since there's so many legal users now. There's people that are willing to participate in these studies. There's no stigma uh, anymore since it's since it's now a legal drug. And there is a, a plethora of studies out there that one can read just and it's incredible. Well, the, about the every few months they come up with another study which is very worrisome. Exactly. And it, uh, it's it's um it's really striking if one reads these they'll, they'll have studies that say, you know, even one day without without using marijuana will show significant impact on the, mm -hmm. on on the user and there's there's so many more studies like this and i think mm -hmm. perhaps something similar is happening now with marijuana where since it has been legalized now we're able to do all these studies and, and research and everything perhaps something similar is mm -hmm. happening where we're able to see that this is actually in fact very very dangerous drugs well you know there there is a difference between recreational and uh and medical marijuana uh, the medical marijuana is, has the cannabis removed, actually, and um, the you know the story is that it is beneficial, and I personally believe it is, just from people I've talked to who have various serious maladies, and they've told me that they have benefited by it legitimately. Okay, sure. uh, they're not doing anything illegal or immoral, but recreational marijuana is a different matter as far as regulating the content of it, the the presence of cannabis, how it affects the brain, notably uh, how it interacts with the receptors in the brain. And uh, studies have proven uh, 
that where marijuana use uh, increases, they have an increase in automobile accidents, um, damage to property, damage to life and limb. Um, they've shown uh, the damage that frequent marijuana or continual marijuana use does to the brain, to various faculties of the brain, like the memory especially, especially in teenagers. There was a recent study that came out, and uh, I, I forget the title of it. There was one uh, recent study that came out, this is not your grandfather's marijuana. Right. They you know, said that there's something more, much more refined and much more potent about this. Yes. And therefore much more uh, damaging. And, um, but they, they actually commissioned, uh, teenagers, um, who use marijuana regularly to come forward. No penalties. They divided them into two groups. Uh, one, they gave a placebo. The other, uh, well, actually one would guarantee they would give up the use of marijuana for a certain length of time. I think it was maybe a month or two. The others would just continue using as they had been. Um, and what they were doing then was testing their cognitive powers, right. uh, the clarity of their thought, their memory ability, and so on. The difference was astounding. Yes. Within a matter of a week of the control, the group having given up the use of marijuana. And by the way, they tested these people, the young people, to make sure that they were free of marijuana use. And they rewarded them by paying them. Uh, more and more, the longer they went without it. So they were, they, it was incentivized not to use marijuana, to try to be as sure as possible that they really were marijuana-free. And uh, they found that within a week's time, their, their ability to think dramatically yes. improved. And um, they found that the effects could be reversed. Uh, I guess, I don't know how, you know, if that... How long that would be true, though? You know, if they used it for years and years, I don't know if the effects could. But at least in teenagers, it could be. Because the brain was still developing, I guess, and it could still recover. The point is, though, it had to recover from the use of the marijuana. <clears throat> there are lymphomas, there are brain tumors that are associated with marijuana use. And um, uh, just people who have any, any, any idea of, of um, getting involved in using marijuana should should look at these studies and ask themselves, is it, do I really want to do this to myself? Is this right? Is it moral? Um, marijuana really is a is a gateway to other other drugs. And I mean, if you well, right here in Hamilton County, Ohio, they talk about uh, basically an epidemic of heroin use mm -hmm. and hero heroin overdose, right? And I, I, I would wager that every single one of those cases, such that we have, uh, what is it, uh, the police officers carrying, what is it, Marfan with them? Narcan. Narcan, to inject heroin. Over, I mean, these police officers are not medics. They have no training in this. But they have to carry syringes and Narcan with them for when they're, when they're called to the case of a, of a heroin overdose to try to save somebody's life. I know trippers who say they, they are not qualified, they're not trained to do this, and they will not do it because it's not right. But in, in any case, I mean, it's come to that. But I, I would wager that every single one of those cases of uh, those who, who overdose on heroin, some many of them dying, some of them perhaps being just pulled from the jaws of death by Narcan, that every one of them started with marijuana, every single one, without exception. 
And here you get cases where we have, uh, you know, students going, getting jobs in fast food places and so on. And uh, they have breaks and they have coworkers and they're out, the coworkers are out back puffing up marijuana. And, you know, we're trying to keep the kids away from all that. So uh, here you, you might have somebody who will not smoke marijuana, does not smoke marijuana. But there's a room in back where they've got four or five people doing that. And the place is filled with it. And you don't have to inhale it, you know, through the, the joint to, to, to be inhaling it. You know, you can inhale it through the nose, too, just because, you know, you people in colleges walking around, they smell marijuana coming out of the restrooms. They're breathing it, too. Now, if that were tobacco, oh, my goodness, you know, we'd be all up in arms, secondhand smoke. Right? Right. <laughs> Very bad, right? But if it's marijuana, if you complained about it, they would say that you're the bad guy. Definitely. So, uh, there's, again, this is the liberal insanity uh, that, uh, that we're dealing with here. It's wrong. It's just, it's very, very dangerous. Uh, this gentleman here does raise, it, I think, a good question. And I think it requires a good answer. I don't know if I've given the best answer, but I've given what answer I can think of at the moment. There you go. Uh, and I think it's legitimate. Okay. Uh, then he actually has another question, Father. This one is concerning the Gospels. He says that he's listened to sermons by Bishop Kelly and Bishop Sante and countless other priests who say uh, essentially the same thing, something along the lines of, in the Gospels, our Lord spoke of hell more than he ever spoke of heaven. One of the priests actually said that one that people need to do a careful, detailed study of the Scriptures and, and discover this fact for themselves. So he said about this research, and he said, I count over 200 references to heaven and only about 55 references to hell. So what is going on here, Father? He's saying in the four Gospels? Yes, is what? Well, I'd actually heard it that there were 64 references to hell in the Gospels. I never actually stopped to count for myself. Uh -huh. But uh, when we say references to heaven and reference to hell, there are no references to hell, and there are no references to heaven in the gospel or anywhere in sacred scriptures, in the sense that the English language and its words hell and heaven did not exist when the gospels were first recorded. Right? I mean, I think that's clear, right? So if we're just looking at the words themselves, if we're counting the words and going down, going through the gospel, St. Matthew, St. Mark, St. Luke, St. John, and just saying, oh, look, Here's the word heaven. The word heaven appears this many times in the gospel. The word hell appears this many times in the translations. Okay. I think we're in danger of missing something. Okay. And that is when our Lord spoke of hell, or when, when you have the word hell used in translation, if you went to those, those, uh, those citations in the gospels, I think you'd find that in each case, our Lord is talking about hell after death as a place of permanent punishment. And but when our Lord refers, well, let's say put it this way: when our, when the term heaven appears, if you're just counting the number of times the word heaven appears, our Lord is not always referring to heaven as it is in eternity, as he refers to hell as the reality of punishment after death. Heaven does not always refer to 
heaven in eternity as place of reward in the presence of God after that, time and time again in the Gospels, our Lord speaks of the kingdom of heaven, okay, the kingdom of God. And when our Lord refers to the kingdom of heaven, he is telling a parable, most often, or a, 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 well, a parable, right? And he's talking about the kingdom of heaven that he has come to establish here on earth. So this is not the kingdom of heaven in eternity, but he's talking about heaven as, as it is in the church. Our Lord made it very clear when he talked about the kingdom of heaven is like five wise and five foolish virgins, right? The kingdom of heaven is uh, when the angels divide the fish, uh, keep the good ones and throw the bad ones back, right? The kingdom of heaven is like to a man who threw a marriage feast to king, and then they found somebody in there without a marriage garment, so they, a wedding garment, so they throw them out. The point being is, our Lord is talking about the kingdom of heaven where there is good and evil, and that is not in eternity. Okay? So when Bishop Kelly and Bishop Santé say our, our Lord was referring to hell, uh, more often than he referred to heaven, I think what they're really what they what they say the intent the, the intent is that our Lord refers to hell as a place of eternal punishment or everlasting punishment more often than he refers to to heaven as a place of everlasting reward in the next world. That when our Lord refers to heaven, as you see the word heaven appearing in translation, right? In the in the gospel, our Lord is telling about the 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 church that He's establishing here on earth, where you have again the good and the bad mixed together in this world. Okay, but you and I would refer to as the church militant. Okay, so I think we have to, you know, in other words. Again, I, I think the gentleman is is trying to get an answer to what's you know is a, a fairly good question here. But uh, so I, I don't mean in any way to detract from the benefit of the question. I just think a very important distinction needs to be made. It's not a matter of saying, well, how often does the word hell appear and how often does the word um, heaven appear, right? Because even the word hell in, in the gospel. Uh, might not be. It might be Gehenna, right? It might be. Well, in the in, in the in the um, scriptures, sometimes uh, hell is even referred to as Sheol, as another world, right? So even there are references to hell that are not don't even use the word hell. But use the word other 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 words that indicate the reality of what hell is. Hell is there. So um, I think if if I think if this fine gentleman, uh, if it is a gentleman, not a lady, I don't know, would go back and say, well, let me go back and recount this now and exclude the times when our Lord is clearly making a, a parable about what he's doing here on this earth and establishing the church in time. And just look at the times our Lord is talking about heaven as it is in eternity where the saints are gathered with God in eternal happiness, and count the number of times he's actually referring to that as a counterpoint, you might say, to hell. I think you'd find 
that uh, exactly as Bishop Kelly and Bishop Santese uh, indicate, that there are more references to hell, the place of eternal punishment, than there are to uh, in the Gospels to the, the eternal bliss in heaven with God in the beatific vision. Okay. Well, Father, with that, we've hit our time limit. Could we possibly end on a happier note than talking about hell? Well, I would certainly hope so. Okay. Uh, here we are. I mean, in spite of everything that's going on right now, here we are by the grace of God. And um, we should be very, very grateful. We just celebrated Thanksgiving. You have an enormous amount to be thankful for. I'm grateful that I still have this arm. <laughs> and we're able to reattach my arm. And I'm grateful for all the prayers that we have. And I know you're grateful for uh, so much, your family. Yes, uh, but uh, that gratitude is, is, um, is so essential to living the Catholic life. I think that uh, this is an important um, uh, reference. I guess commentary on the questions that have been asked here. Um, that we have our Catholic faith. We have serious questions, but we have serious answers too. And I'm not saying that I have all the answers or the best answers by any means. Um, but the answers are there. I know they are. And what we don't know, we can find. Because God has given us those answers through our Catholic faith. And we should be so grateful for our faith. So, uh, you know, when we're thinking about... we. As they used to say in Ding Dong School with Miss Francis, when you know we're little toddlers here, we'd watch Miss Francis lead the grace before uh, before the snack. You know, uh, God is great, God is good, and we thank Him for our food. Is what she used to say. Now this is going back a ways, okay, sixty years or more. Uh, we thank God for the food we have. We thank God for uh, the homes, the love that God has shown us through through our homes. We thank God. For the blessings he's given us, all the graces he's given us through life. Uh, we thank God for our country. We thank God for the safety we, that we enjoy here. And uh, the God-given rights we have that are respected still, in spite of the leftists' attempt to, to take them away and make them mere privileges that are given to us by the state, not rights that are given to us by God. We thank that we still have God that we have that. But we have to thank God most of all for the supernatural benefits, the supernatural gifts that he gives us, and faith, hope, and charity. The fact that uh, he has adopted us into the state of his grace and give us an, an inheritance of everlasting life. If only we really appreciated these things. You know? If, if we, we, we are able to attend the traditional Mass and receive our Lord in Holy Communion, I mean, even the, the, the name Holy Eucharist indicates that thanksgiving for the, the greatest gift of all. If we could just pause when we receive the host and make a, a profound uh, acknowledgement of our Lord's presence there in the Blessed Sacrament and make an act of gratitude to him there. Uh, that is, these are the most important moments of our lives. Uh, as I, as I day after day go down the communion rail and administer Holy Communion to our students, uh, on Sundays when I go down the communion rail and administer Holy Communion to our people, um, I'm praying for them, each and every one of them individually, uh, as I give them the host that, that, that blesses our Lord will guard their souls under everlasting life. But I'm hoping 
also that with each one of those, that as each one of those receives our Lord, that one by one by one by one by one, so many times up and down the communion rail, all those literally hundreds of people, I'm hoping that each one of them is at that moment making an act of thanks to our Lord. And how important that is, that that, that act of thanks is being offered to God there at the funeral, at that Mass, by all of those people who come there to uh, take that moment of their lives to uh, actually express their gratitude to our Lord. So, um, I'll tell you, I mean, with all the evil in the world, and there's some pretty bad stuff going on out there right now, um, there's a reason why God has not, quote-unquote, lowered the boom on us, right? And I can't help but think it is precisely because there are still people in the world who uh, appreciate um, appreciate our Lord and show it by faith, hope, charity, which motivates gratitude. And, um, well, we have to not only maintain that, sustain that, but we have to increase that to push back against all the evils that are going on in the world today. So I guess if there's any positive note that I would have to offer, that would have to be it right now. So Definitely. Be grateful to God. Father, thanks for being here tonight. God bless you. Thank you. Thanks to all of our viewers as well for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady of Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary and to pray and do penance. Thank you and God bless you.